Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. It's Dr. Doolittle here. How are you, radiotherapists? God, it's nice to be back. You know, I reckon I'm just getting just a little bit too comfortable in this world of Zoom. I get out of bed, I don't have a shower, I don't really clean my teeth, I don't do anything, I just walk to my computer, I start Zooming, no preparation, no driving to Brunswick, no, no getting nervous buying a coffee, I just tumble out of bed. Um, who have we got in the virtual studio this morning? Let me run around because we've got like a, we've got a, to be honest, what, what do you call a group? Is it a gaggle of radiotherapists? What's the collective noun? Anyway, there's a thousand of us. There's Dr. Patient. Good morning. Oh, there he is, our trusty consumer rep. How are you, DP? Yeah, I'm doing okay. Doing okay. And on my screen underneath Dr. Patient or DP, which I've just nicknamed him, is Cyber Sue. G'day, Cyber Sue. Good morning, Doolittle. Trusty nurse, works in a big hospital, used to work in the children's. I can say that now because it's not giving anything away because it's a used to. But that'll come in handy for some of the things we're going to talk about this morning. And Dr. Trainer Wheels, who I always remind everyone, she's not really Trainer Wheels anymore. She's fully qualified, although we nabbed her for this show when she was just an itty-bitty little medical student. Trainer Wheels, how are you? Good morning. Not bad. How are you, dear little? Yeah, top of the I'm top of the world, as you can tell. I think I I don't know. Maybe I've got some whiskey in my cup of um, what flavour is it? It's uh, it's lemon and ginger tea, or as uh, my best friend says, ginger. And in the studio in Brunswick, the only person who is in the real life spot where he should be is uh, Panel Beater. G'day, Panel Beater. How are you, mate? Good morning to you all. Great to see you. Hey, I might introduce also. Um, our special guest, even though we're not going to speak to him for about 10 minutes, so he'll be forced to essentially shut up. But he's more important than, well, certainly me. I was going to say all of us put together. But he's, <laughs> that's not fair on the rest of you. Um, let me just check if he's unmuted. He's, uh, he's, he's unmuted. And our special guest today is Associate Professor Grant Blaschke, who is a GP, an academic, and a public health communicator who's released a new book entitled Climate, Health and Courage. G'day, Grant. Just an early hello. Hi there. Thanks for joining us. Great to be on your show. And I'll introduce Grant more later because, as many of you all know, he's the lead clinical advisor for Beyond Blue and he has all these jobs at Melbourne Uni, including in uh, global health, that I'll uh, give you a more formal introduction later. But let's jump straight into the news. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, Head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Let's jump over to you, DP, Dr. Patient. I believe you have young'uns about to return to school. Yes. Yes, I do. Oh, look, it's, uh, I've been trying to describe it. Uh, it's, it's like that final scene in, uh, in Shawshank Redemption, you know, through the pipe, just pulling ourselves through that pipe right at the end of <laughs> Wasn't the pipe full of uh, human waste? Human waste. It is. It has been. Um, it's been hard. This uh, this one has finally has finally tipped us over the edge a bit. But um, tomorrow, tomorrow, my uh, my youngin is going back to school for the first time in months. Um, and the standard the standard question, the standard fear that everyone is because he is not uh, vaccinated or part of the the group to be vaccinated yet is you know. What's going to happen? And 
I wanted to allude to a uh, panel that was done with the Royal Children's Hospital, and it was published about a month ago, and it's called The Effects of COVID-19 on Children's Physical Health. I've watched it a couple of times, my wife has watched it a couple of times, and it has done everything to ease my troubled mind. So you've got uh, the host, Dr. Anthea Rhodes. You've got Dr. Sarah McNabb, who's the Director of General Medicine. You've got Shadan Tosif, who's the head of the Respiratory Infection Clinic. You've got Professor Andrew Steer, who's an infectious disease specialist. And you've got Associate Professor Margie Danshin, who's also an expert in vaccines. And it's on the Royal Children's Hospital YouTube page. It answered every question that I had. And there is there is always a risk, but it has really, really shifted my perspective on young kids getting back out there, getting back to school. And it's it's really helped. And I just want to tell everyone, look, it's going to be it's going to be a, a, an apprehensive, you know, apprehensive month or two until we can get the kids, uh, get the kids on side. But it, this really helped. So if you've got kids, if they're heading back to school, if you're worried, seriously, take a look. It was it was amazing. It was amazing. Children's do the children's do a really good job with that sort of stuff, don't they, yeah. Doctor Patient? They communicate so well and they produce really good media. And I think it's so important to be sort of cautiously optimistic because we know that lockdowns forever are terrible for kids too. Yeah. You know, homeschool's no good. Kids need to be back at school with their friends doing, you know, normal life stuff. All we wanted, all we wanted for, for our kid was to get a bunch of kids to have a bunch of mates and, you know, well, that didn't happen for the first bit, but we're just, we're hoping now. And, you know, look, you know how everyone knows how my mind is and it certainly went to some pretty worried places, but this um, this really helped. So, yeah, as, as a patient, as a parent, I highly recommend it. Yeah, they are. I mean, I really couldn't commend their um, media department high enough. They make amazing videos with all sorts of special effects. Um, not only are they entertaining, they're educational. You know, they also made a video at the start of COVID or about six, four or six months in with our own Dr. Spock using his real name, Dr. Mike Starr, um, where he's on this sort of tele... It's this really cool telephone call where he's, like, reassuring a child about COVID and what it all means and stuff like that. And it's really cute. It's on my Facebook page. I'm pretty sure I shared it on Radio Therapies. I'll find that one you're talking about, um, Dr. DP, and uh, I shall um, share that on the Radio Therapy on Triple R Facebook book page thanks for bringing that i've also got my partner's got three kids who have just gone back to school in the last month first the older one went back who's 14 and the younger two are uh, have just started back in the last couple of weeks and it was a nervous time because they all of course get coughs and colds too yep. you know and all of them have come home with coughs and colds and had tests which have been negative i might add but um anyway um we also had something from you i believe trainer wheels at some special day yeah, Friday just been, which let me just check the calendar, that was the 15th of October, was Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Day. Did you know that hundred over 100,000 Australians every marriage and more than 2,000 experience stillbirth? I had no idea it was that many. That say means, it again, trainer wheels. Uh, if my maths is correct. I think you dropped out slightly. I think your internet connection's a bit dodge on the dodgy side. Oh, yeah, it is so a bit. Say it, is it again. Bit. I've got... I've got NBN, but it's terrible. Um, over 100,000 Australians a year experience miscarriage and over 2,000 experience stillbirth per year, which is 
mental. I had no idea it was that much. You know, that means that around six Australians a day experience stillbirth. Very, very common. Very sad. Wait a second. So you're doing 2,000 divided by 300 odd. I see yeah. what you mean. Yeah. And of course, miscarriage is incredibly common because a lot of people have, you know, miscarriage, I think, I think, you know, in fact, I bet you, um, I bet you, uh, Grant Blaschke will know this better. But I remember from med school, something like, you know, a third, maybe not quite as high as a third, but one in five, certainly pregnancies end in miscarriage. And of course, a lot aren't people don't realise because they think they're just heavy periods and they're early on. So it is a really huge problem. And of course, um, women who experience um, uh, obviously uh, miscarriage and stillbirth, I think it's one of those underestimated mental health problems. You know, I mean, look, it's better these days. Certainly in my era, it was just considered get on with it. Um, but it is, it's a huge issue. I know, I know, when I was married, we had some miscarriages. It's really huge. I just think it's so good that there's an awareness day for it to encourage people to talk about it. You know, everyone's different and people grieve differently and some people are private, of course, but it's one of those things that we're sort of not meant to talk about and, you know, you're not meant to tell people you're pregnant until a certain number of weeks in and it's sort of meant to be this. I just think all of that adds to shame and I think it's so important to give people the um, the ability to talk about it if they want to, to normalise it. It's so common. It's very sad, but so many people go through it. I think it's really important we have those sorts of days. Yeah, gee, you remind me. One of my mates when I was young, um, when he got they, he and his um, partner got pregnant, he announced it straight away. And I remember where there was a group of us and someone said, why are you announcing it so early? You shouldn't really announce it until 12 weeks. And he said, no, 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 if, um, if, if something bad happens and me and my partner are crying, I'd like my friends to know why we're crying. Which just was so obvious. Yet, um, you know, it was so, you know, this was going back years ago when people didn't announce. Hey, um, likewise, also- as if you, sorry, I was just going to say, likewise in early pregnancy, if you're just feeling like crap, you're not meant to tell anyone why. You're just going to be miserable for weeks and weeks and keep people guessing. It's horrible. Yeah, I think it's because we need to focus on the men in society and so leave a lot of space for when they cr- feel crap so that you... Okay, I'm being a dickhead. Um, <laughs> hey, it's also a couple of other big weeks this week. It was also Mental Health Week, wasn't it, Cam? Did you do anything... Uh, Cam, who's Cam? I don't know who Cam is. Dr. Patient, was it Mental Health Week this week? It was. It was Mental Health Week and there was so much happening. I, I don't want to highlight someone over the other, but it, it rounded out beautifully. We had, you know, I, you know, I do my work with, with Sane and we had our peer ambassadors talking about their experiences. There was... There was so much stuff to, for people to access this week. I just wanted to, I wanted to thank everyone for taking part in Mental Health Week this week. It was, it was great. But you know, I, I don't want to allude to anyone more than the other because there was just so much, and everyone, everyone really got got their voice out, and everyone had a say, and everyone's learning just that little bit more. So, uh, you know, here we go. And I, you know, I think that that's one of the one of the good things about COVID, I guess, is that it's really highlighted the generalised awareness, hasn't it, of mental health and the impacts on all of us, and it impacts all of us. I know that where I work, also we've had um, heaps of uh, webinars, um, online speakers. We had this amazing Dr. Steve Allen and Grant Blaschke the other day, and we had so good. It was so good. amazing. I can't believe that we haven't got those guys on radiotherapy. We should get Steve Allen and Grant Blaschke on. I don't think, I don't think he's good. available. No. He's far too busy. I don't think he could do radiotherapy. I did so many things. I did just I did a thing on laughter for the age. I did the 
um, Evils of Social Media, of course, something with Grant Blaschke, hosted something with um, Catherine Devney and, uh, and Clementine Ford. That was fantastic. There's so many good people now speaking about mental health. You know, that's, that's the amazing thing. Half the time when people who are, you know, supposed experts like us get on, I just shut up now because there are so many good people saying such good stuff and it's new messages and it's sort of like um, a new perspective. Um, so, yeah, I love it so much. Hey, um, I reckon we shall go to Cyber Sue. You're pointing at something, but I don't know what it is because it's, it's to me, you're pointing at a picture on my wall. <laughs> oh, Dr. Blaschke's got his hand up. That Dr. Blaschke, who, by the way, I mentioned before, is lead clinical advisor for Beyond Blue. Did you want to add something to that bit of the debate? Yeah, I just thought I'd jump in before my interview and just say yeah, I really enjoyed our, our chat, uh, Steve, out at, at uh, one of the big hospitals. And one of the lovely talks we did at Beyond Blue was to about a 1,000 school teachers and, um, you know, think about the teachers and what they've been doing during these lockdowns. have just been incredible the way they've been uh, sitting there on Zoom forever in the lockdown states and, and then trying to get kids back to school with masks on and stressed out kids. They've been amazing. I love the way too all these big company, all these big groups now are just routinely doing stuff for Mental Health Week. I did another one for Mental Health um, First Aid Foundation, another one for one of the big worldwide horticultural companies who had a whole week of stuff and they ended it with um, some stuff from me and Catherine Devney. It was, yeah, there's so much stuff going on. It is fantastic. Thanks for bringing that up. Oh, you know, the other thing we should mention in weeks, just really quickly, it was also Allied Health Professionals Day on Thursday. Big shout out to all our Allied Health Professionals. There's about 35 different classes of allied health professionals, all the obvious ones, psychologists, social workers, physiotherapists, OTs, spiritual care, social work, you know, I could go on, but there's about 35 groups, music therapists, art therapists, um, amazing bunch of professionals. I work with them every day, so a big shout out to them for their annual day too. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. We have our special guest now. Now, I've given him a semi-intro, but let me give him a formal intro, worthy of his stature in this world. Associate Professor Grant Blaschke. Grant is a practising GP for over 25 years. He's uh, almost as old as me. And is the lead clinical advisor for Beyond Blue. He's also an Associate Professor at the Nossel Institute and the Melbourne Sustainable Society Institute at the University of Melbourne. Now, I chat to Grant all the time about things related to mental health because of his um, role at Beyond Blue, which is a fantastic organisation. But he also does a whole lot of stuff, obviously, for the Melbourne Sustainable Society Institute. And he's just released a book by the name of... I haven't got it in front of me now. It's called Climate Health and Courage... I was reading some chapters yesterday. You'd think I would have looked at the front page a little bit careful. And I made a beautiful photo to put on our Facebook page. Grant, g'day again. Hi there. Great to be on your show, Dr. Doolittle. Hey, uh, why don't you start the ball rolling just by telling us what the Melbourne Sustainable Society Institute at Uni of Melbourne is. We may as well get that uh, up because I I only see that on your CV. I don't know a lot about it. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. It's across all the different sort of disciplines and departments at the University of Melbourne. As I guess we're in this sort of decade where we're hoping that the whole society is going to transform. I'm hoping my grandchildren in 10 years will look at me and go, so did you drive cars with 
oil in them and they put smoke out of them and and did you get your electricity from coal? What what, what are you guys thinking? So, you know, I think we're in, in for a, a change as, as fast as the technological revolution and as big as the industrial revolution and we're doing our little piece of the puzzle to try and make that happen. And with that in mind, obviously, you've made this new book, you know, and by the way, it's at least, I can't remember how many books you've done, but it's, I know I was involved in one about 15 years ago, and I've seen at least seven or eight others over the time. So what was the motivation behind this book? So for your listeners and for you, this is a bit of a matrix moment. First first matrix, are you going to have the red pill or the blue pill, <laughs> right? Because once I tell you what the science is, it's not fun. You've you got to reckon with it somehow, you know. So a lot of us are running around, me included, with the blue pill. Don't tell me about it. You know, I'm probably using more greenhouse gases than almost anyone in the world as an affluent Australian, right? But the, every year when I run my master's course or look at the science again, not good. So there's, there's a group of very clever scientists who come together every year in a thing called the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and they do these big sort of systematic reviews and policy reviews. In short, they tell us unambiguously the earth is warming. It is already 1.1 degree above pre-industrial times. It is well and truly headed to 1.5 degrees and possibly by 2030. And if we don't do anything urgently, we're going to have some serious trouble. So this is what the red pill involves. And, you know, so we know the science, but all of us now can see with our eyes what is happening. You know, you look at the news and you see the fires in Europe and Greece and Canada, and we know that in Australia we had outrageous fires in 2019, 18 million hectares, nothing like we'd ever seen. And sadly, all these predictions actually are coming true. You know, the scientists are spot on and it's very worrying. And Grant, in your book, you talk a little bit about, well, you have a chapter written on climate change anxiety. So, you know, what actually is that? Tell us about that. Yeah. So once you sort of understand what's going on, which a lot of our young people do, and many of us who are scientifically minded, it's very worrying. You know, you think, gosh, what, what's it going to look like by 2100? Yeah, particularly if you've got kids, grandkids. So um, people worry about it. And the way that I think about the mental health implications of climate change, there's the direct stuff, right? You happen to be the person living in the, in the way of a fire or a flood or a drought, or you're uh, a... Uh, person on a low-lying island in the Pacific, right? You're experiencing the actual trauma stress there. Then there's the indirect effects, which is the fallout on societies, you know, the social, economic. There's a lot of talk that the big conflicts we had in Syria was partially due to drying up of, you know, water and farming land. So suddenly you had a million people landing in a city. So there's those sort of indirect flow-ons. And then I think for those of us in fairly, you know, comfortable um, Western countries, there's this sort of vicarious worry and sense of what the future's going to be like, so a more general concern that something's not right that we have to deal with for future generations. So I see a mix of that. 
And uh, I mean, I read you a chapter this morning and it was actually very interesting. It was actually very enlightening for me. So I'm grateful for having that opportunity to read it. Um, what kind of struck me is you talk about the activists of um, the, the Gen Z and the, the opportunities and possibilities for them and what's really going to happen. What I was curious about is what makes them different to the activists of the 60s and the 70s before my time, but, you know, there was a lot of activation and activists in those decades. So what makes it different to now and the people now? Yeah, it's a great question. And, look, I'm always half sceptical and then appreciative of, you know, characterizations of generations. But I actually think there is something about those Gen Zs that, particularly now, you know, where they've been slammed by COVID as well, where they're hyper-connected, you know, they can multitask and, you know, the, the calibre of students that I see coming through now, it's just extraordinary, you know, the way their relationship to knowledge is different. They understand what's going on. I think also they're, they're much more comfortable to just question power structures and go, well, hang on, that's not that's not right. And, I mean, it's not just my intuition. Mission Australia does a big survey of that generation every year, about 20,000, and, you know, they found the top three issues. These young people are worried about mental health, environment, social justice. So that's where they're at. And I wonder whether um, out of that have we also like for all the evil that we've done in the world and getting us to this position, have we also created an, um, an environment for them to be able to question us and to be able to question things? And maybe in the past that was less of an option for younger generations. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I'm not an anthropologist, but I, I appreciate what you're saying. And, I mean, apart from anything else, the power structures just got turned upside down. I mean, they... The world runs on tech and social media and and then they're better than us and and certainly than the generation before us. So they they, you know, they're they're empowered and they're willing to question and they've got incredible access to information. And and I also think when you think about the way they're growing up, their peer group is very much globalized in a way. So it's not just to do with their family and school life. You know, they have this global Insta TikTok community that influences how they think about things. I think uh, Dr. Patient had his hand up next. And yeah. Then, and then uh, Dr. Trainer with. Thanks. Um, Grant, I, I wanted to, to latch onto that a little bit about health. What do you see as the, you know, has the biggest impact of climate change on health? You know, how, how is that going to, to not, not just mental health, but physical health as well, how is that going to, to affect our generations? I mean, we, we have these beautifully hyper-connected next-generation kids, but how is that going to affect our health and their health? Yeah, look, it's a very substantial risk to global health. You know, The Lancet, one of the top journals in the world, says it's the number one risk to the gains that we've made in global health. Global health. I often say to my students, climate change is an amplifier. You know, it's an amplifier of global health problems. If you look, say, in India, where you've got poor access to sanitation and water and all sorts of issues, you know, make it make the average temperature there 40 degrees a day and see how that goes. Yeah. You know, there's, there's projections, again, in this sort of red pill land of really quite big swathes of uninhabitable land. 
Um, we already know that there are many people health affected by heat waves, storms, air pollution, displacement, changes in distribution, infectious diseases. But just I'm going to pause there because it's Sunday morning and it's pretty heavy news, right? So whenever I talk about this stuff, I always like to talk about the hope budget, right? And I think anyone that you're talking to about climate change, remember the hope budget. And there's a lot to be hopeful for. I'm absolutely, I'm going to use the word flabbergasted. Um, I'm flabbergasted when I can see the change in the markets at the moment. You know, people who couldn't give a damn about the environment are suddenly all over climate change and how can they invest in renewables? And the signals coming from policymakers are telling the banks and telling those investors, let's go, let's move. I can see we really are at an extraordinary tipping point at the moment. So a lot to be hopeful for. The other thing to say, we've got the technology. This is a psychological social challenge. We have the renewables and the wind and the, you know, the solar and all these clever ways of saving electricity. It's not a technological challenge anymore. It's a challenge of government policy and can we do it? That is, that is some Sunday morning hopium. Dr. Trainer Wheels, I think you were next. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to say firstly, Grant, thank you for speaking so candidly about the, you know, the risks that we're all aware of that we sort of try to ignore or forget about in our day-to-day lives, but it's nice to have a bit of a red pill truth bomb, um, but also to have that tempered with a bit of optimism as well. It's, it's Yeah, it's nice to have both sides of it, I think. I guess I was wondering in terms of Gen Z being really quite a remarkable group of young people and and I think channeling their climate anxiety into activism, is that something that you recommend when you see patients in your personal practice who are experiencing climate anxiety? What sort of advice do you give them? Yeah, so there's a few things we say. I guess the first is I'm always slightly cautious. You know, they come in and I say, oh, I just wanted the oral contraceptive pill and now I have to go and visit my minister. You know, like I think we've got to be cautious about what our role is. But some general tips that I'll, I'll say is never feel like you've got to do it on your own. You know, over 20 years at the university, I've had lots of enthusiastic young things who burn out after about two years, you know, because this sort of environmental topic in um, sort of attracts a bit of grandiosity about saving the world. And the truth is none of us are. Can You've got to pick your little piece of the puzzle that you can work with. That's good. Um, small increments. Another good thing I say is we may not fully solve this, right, but you know what? Two degrees rise is going to be a hell of a lot better than four degrees. So every little bit of work we can do to move our policymakers to get Australia to go to Glasgow with a half-decent target, you know, it's all worth it. It's all happening. It's sort of unstoppable. The other thing I'd say to people, and I, I work with a lot of young activists, is know when to back off. You know, make sure that you don't just become immersed in a in a sort of cocoon of climate activism, um, you know, of just guilt-ridden people going, oh, my gosh, the world's going to end. I have to work on this the whole time. You know, quarantine it, bar- uh, sensible boundaries, keep having fun, um, and at the same time do some good things. So there's just a couple of things that I think are smart, but action's a great antidote to stress. So put your energy into something and work with like-minded people. And 
Yeah, that's so that's that's so true. That kind of having that project and that function and that purpose is so important, isn't it, for our mental health as well? And so then to put it to good use like this is absolutely a great combo. I want to just shift the question slightly. We can't possibly have a conversation without mentioning COVID. What is your um I often, I think we all wonder about the impact of COVID on climate change and we'll suddenly, we're not flying in aeroplanes, we're not traveling. Even this morning, I was talking about the impact in some of these um, Asian countries where you've in the past is covered in litter from our destruction. What's your kind of um, observation of the impact of COVID on climate? It's a great question. A couple of things. First of all, from a practical, practical point of view, it did, there was a little dip in greenhouse gases, but it was little. Uh, you know, I think maybe if I'm right, I could check it, but I think it was about 7% when, when the world's wheels stopped turning, but a lot, mostly it kept going. And then as it opened up, we're just reclaiming all that catch up on greenhouse gas emissions pretty quick. But it does give you a sense of the scale of change we need, that even with that whole pandemic sort of shutdown, we didn't really put a dent in it. But I think more philosophically, what's fascinating is it's been a big kick up the ass for humanity that we're not in charge, that the planet is in, is in charge, that nature's in charge. And I think for many of us, the climate change discussion felt abstract, like, oh, yeah, sure, we'll bring down our emissions. But really, what does it matter? You know, we're, we're, everything's just going to keep ticking over as it did. But I think people all around the world realise, no, 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 if you don't listen to the science, things can really come unstuck. And so in that sense, we've learned that we can make massive global policies, you know, even in Australia. Hey, let's roll out JobKeeper. You know, maybe with the climate action, it, we need to take, obviously, all these people who work in coal-dependent industries and oil industries, we need to take them with us. Maybe we can do some sort of JobKeeper type equivalent that says we recognise you're being hit. So I think it's opened up like a whole flexible way of thinking that things can change, and I think that's good. And I think that what is interesting is that we've had this forced change in the way that we live, and I wonder we're also desperate to get back to how things were, but... Does this give us the chance to pause on that as well? And do we need to be doing all of those climate-impacting ways of life that we were doing before, or can we perhaps modify that slightly? And I guess the other question that Trainer Wheels just threw up there is also in the COVID context and climate is all the PPE waste. And, the you know, we're seeing a little bit of that in the news, aren't we, of um, the climate impact of our profound waste. Yeah. Yeah, I think that they're, they're great points. I mean, there, there's been this sort of discourse about, you know, grow back green and recovering from COVID in a green way and pivoting. And I think it's hard, we'll never know exactly, but there's been the most extraordinary shift in, in the way that businesses are suddenly investments and banks actually thinking. Government's a bit slow to catch up. In Australia, the state governments are there. I mean, extraordinary. New South Wales. 50% in eight years by 2030, you know. The federal government's saying, oh, I don't know if we can do 50% by 2050. Um, you know, so we're seeing the state governments take quite a lot of leadership at the moment. Um, and I think to your broader point, no doubt, I think we'll look back on history and this will be one of those pivotal changing points where we all reassessed how we're living, how much we travel, where do we get our 
our vitality from from our families and locally and how we live and maybe some of that absolute craziness, you know, where you book an overseas trip on an app in the morning and shoot around like there's no cost to it, which was fun, um, you know, is probably come to an end and we're, and we're probably going to be a little bit more thoughtful about what we're doing. I hope so. Hey, uh, Grant, I'm going to finish up with a question relevant especially to our audience, but before I do, I want to change your name to The Blash. Because, you know, you've been on radiotherapy so much, and I know that's your nickname in the real world. So you're now officially the Blash on radiotherapy. Hey, Blash, um, tell me, you know, we're a health show. What about clinicians? I know you're focused on clinicians. What can, you know, any health clinician do specifically? How should we get engaged? How can we do more um, to aid this cause? Well, there's lots you can do, should be aware, and I'm very proud to have been one of the founders of Doctors for Environment Australia, who are doing awesome work. If you're not a doctor per se and you're interested from a healthcare point of view, Climate and Health Alliance, also brilliant, led by the very impressive Fiona Armstrong. You think it's this massive organisation. You know, hang on, I'll just put you through to our uh, reception and that's her again. She's just amazing. So lots of, and they're very powerful, these organisations. Doctors have a strong history, proud history of advocating on public health issues and we've got something to say about the climate and I think we've got um, really quite influential links in the community and greatly trusted by our patients. So get involved, get it, join up to one of those groups. It's really critical for you to be part of the solution and not just passive, especially at the moment. Our government ministers are freaking out. They are teetering on the edge of a meltdown. You know, who would have thought ScoMo old bring coal into Parliament is yesterday saying, oh, we need to be zero by 2050. You know, this is this is huge. Put the pressure on. Lay it on now as voters. You've got lots of capacity to influence things. Yes, there has never been a better time to email your local member about this because, as you say, it is clearly a, a point in history. Hey, um, Professor Graham Plaschke. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And it's so, you know, I hear you talk about mental health and general practice issues so often. To hear you talk about climate health is just inspiring. I love it. Thank you for joining us on the show. Um, I assume we'll be saying goodbye to you because I know you've got some sort of climate event today, I'm pretty sure. I know I squeezed you. We, we, you know, yeah, we they, twist your arm, didn't we? Yeah, very honoured to be involved in the Al Gore Climate Reality Project, which been involved with since the first one in 2006. And then we had 84 people trained to give Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth Talk. This year we've got more than 10,000 people in the virtual training and it's really extraordinary, especially when they do breakout groups, which they do, into groups of 30 and you're like, wow, the logistics of this is extraordinary. But there's a lot of, you know, to the hope budget to finish on, there's a lot of people worried about this, a lot of very smart, active people we're going to do well on this. Be part of it. Jump on. Good luck with your work. And if anyone ever wants to treat too, don't forget to jump on to, you know, search Grant Blaschke in various social media and watch him play his musical instruments. He made quite a few lockdown videos that gave me a, 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 a reason to bop about. Hey, you listen to Radiotherapy. I'm Doolittle. We've also got uh, Cyber Sue. We've got Dr. Patient. We've got the Panel Beater. And we've got... 
Wait a second, who did I forgot? Dr. Trainer Wheels. Um, and it's uh, Sunday morning. It's uh, 10.43. It's 3 Triple R. We're going to go to a couple of station announcements, and then we're going to be back to talk about some uh, COVID controversies and news that have caught our attention this week. Stay tuned, folks. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about COVID news. Let me give you the latest COVID news before we go over to Cyber Sue, who's going to tell us about some border issues, because I, uh, you know, I always check the newspaper. <laughs> I'm like a researcher. Um Rightio, we're up to 65% double vaccinated, 88% single vaccinated. Ha, 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 all those people who said Australians wouldn't jump on board to vaccination. Ha, ha, ha. We're going to be over 90 soon. We are killing it. If we get the same degree of enthusiasm behind climate change, by 2050, we're all going to be walking around on it and riding on our bikes with our thongs, feeling good about ourselves. Hey, I see you at the moment. I like to focus on numbers that are a little bit more important, in my opinion. Um, I know the vaccine's super important, but I mean, rather than the number of people who've got COVID, because it's 1,838 today, but how many of them are vaccinated? How many of them are unvaccinated? Because it's the, va- it's the unvaccinated that end up in hospital, not the vaccinated. They're the ones that are going to overwhelm us. So um, I, we don't know that breakdown. But in ICU at the moment, we've got 312 out of out of. 3,900 beds in Australia, and in Victoria, we've got 157 out of 1,476. I say those numbers because even though that's a hell of a lot of people in hospital, and it's a whole host- it's a whole city hospital worth of people, and uh, that's a lot of people uh, in ICU, but by the same token, of course, we've got scope. We're not overwhelmed yet, but everyone's pretty damn... Um, nervous. Say, uh, Cyber Sue, what were you going to tell us about? I've got some stuff that I'm going to talk about on contact tracing. What did you want to talk about? I want to talk a bit about the um, uh, interaction and impact of COVID on our First Nations people. Um, There's been a fair bit in the news in the last couple of weeks. And on Thursday, there was a Senate hearing and there was a number of Indigenous leaders that talked about this. And I think it's a really, it's obviously a very important topic for us to be mindful of. Um, up until June of this year, there was only 153 people, origin, uh, Indigenous people who had actually been uh, infected by COVID. But since Delta came in, that's absolutely uh, become exponentially larger, four and a half thousand people since then. And the vaccination rate, they're all important. Whilst it's still growing, it's roughly speaking 20% behind the rest of us. Um, and some of these Indigenous leaders who, are, who have been talking in the last couple of weeks have really highlighted their concerns of this and the concerns in their communities. Um, what are the big... Oh, sorry, um, Dr um, Trainer-Wheels. I just wanted to say briefly, it's really sad that the First Nations people, their vaccination rates are behind the rest of the country. We know that in Victoria, the First Nations vaccination rate is very, very good, um, and that's because places like the... Victorian Aboriginal Health Service in Fitzroy had a, have had really, really good um, vaccination programs there and um, has been a very strong focus on it here. But, you know, at First Nations people were identified in some of the very first priority groups to be vaccinated and now they're behind the rest of the country. It's just so, so upsetting that, you know, this we should have seen this coming. We knew that they were a priority group and we should have delivered vaccines where they needed to go at the beginning and we could have avoided this problem. It's really, it's very sad. 
Yeah, it's hard to know um, how much of the ball was dropped. You know, as you know, I was up in um, working in Indigenous communities for the first half of this year, and the initial closing of the border, protecting of the communities, you know, there was all sorts of stuff. Like when I went up there, I had to um, wait an extra two weeks, so I was allowed out in Cairns and in various other places, but it was an extra two weeks before I was allowed out onto into the Torres Strait Islands and Arakoon and Pomperau and all the Indigenous communities. And so everyone was super good early on, but then when the vac... And everyone knew that to deliver the vaccines to these places, we're going to have to put in extra resources, um, educational resources in local languages, not, you know, English, assuming everyone speaks it, they don't, um, plus people going around and actually speaking to Indigenous populations and explaining to them and dealing with their questions. And it's, I'm not, because I, I came back to Melbourne in July, so I'm not quite sure why we dropped the ball so much on vaccines. Do you have a sense, CyberSoup? Well, from what I gather, I mean, as um, Trainer Wheels just said, Victoria's leading the way in, in Australia, which I think is great for us. But some of the messages I was hearing is that the the, the need to call on what um, what one person called localised heroes and the grassroots communities. So rather than kind of the, the, the cities going in and giving this messaging, it has to come locally and from local people um, conveying the message to their own people in their own languages, um, working with the um, Indigenous health workers and so on, is the resounding message that seems to be coming through. You know, this is just my sort of take on things. This is not particularly evidence-based, but I get the sense with the vaccine rollout in general, not, not specifically with First Nations peoples, but in general, a lot of the messaging has been go and get vaccinated. Everyone go get vaccinated. You're the priority group, go do it. It's sort of as if the onus has been on the individual to go and get the vaccine rather than governments and other bodies going to the vulnerable groups and actually improving access and and giving people the opportunity. Because we know that now in, in Victoria, especially where we're having outbreaks amongst unvaccinated people, they're not vaccine hesitant a lot of the time. It's that they don't have access and that information hasn't been provided to them in appropriate language. Um, I just think that perhaps the the messaging has been on the individual rather than on sort of structural um, frameworks in place that improve access and, and actually get the vaccines where they need to go rather than waiting for people to come. It's that combination of science of knowing how to give the vaccines where to give them and how to deliver them and marketing, touching on some of Cyber Sue's points like local heroes, figuring out what messages are heard and what works in local communities which you know it's not a science of strength that's your marketing people you almost need the advertising executives to understand the people and figure out the messages and stuff cyber sue you had your and, hand. and working and working with them like working closely closely with them so that they're leading it for themselves um there are some door-to-door strategies taking place now with um uh walking door-to-door to say here we're here to give you a vaccination and my, that seems to be working quite well. So the, the message is that the gap is closing, but as you say, the gap shouldn't have even been there in the first place. Yeah, and anecdotally, I've been seeing the messaging starting to shift on social advertising as well, where they have started uh, uh, taking experts of particular cultural um, cultural backgrounds in their language, specifically in their language, saying this is why, this is the benefit, this is where the strengths are, of getting the vaccination, but right at the start, it was it was all in English, and everyone should just know, as opposed to as opposed to we need to, we need to speak to you in your language. Exactly, I think I guess one of the good take home kind of things out of this is that in Indigenous communities, the data is showing that 
the uptake is lower in the younger group. However, what that means is that the older age group who are potentially more vulnerable, the vaccination rate has actually been higher. So that's a, that's a good that's a good outcome. And we are also in an incredibly lucky position that we have this amazingly established um, Aboriginal health officers or Indigenous health officers, depending where you are, um, workforce. So they've got all these people who are trained all around Australia to deliver it. You don't see them so much in Victoria, but up in the top end across, you know, the places I was working, Broome, Darwin, um, uh, top end of um, Queensland, uh, they're, they're huge and they're, they're local people, trained locally, trusted, delivering healthcare, delivering healthcare messages. There's sort of two groups of them. There's the sort of the healthcare workers and the support officers. Um, so we have this great infrastructure. It's just a matter of getting stuff out of there. Thanks for bringing that uh, topic to us. I wanted to touch briefly on an issue that's... Um, uh, responding to all the 80 million texts I get about this issue every week. And that's so many people have been telling me in the last couple of weeks of people with COVID who haven't been called by contact tracers. And so it was leading to heaps of chatter among all the doctor groups, all my WhatsApp groups saying, you know, with, you know, I had one person text me this week saying, I had three patients this week, all had positive for COVID, all had been four and five days since they'd got their test, no contact from the contact tracers, what the bejesus is going on. And so we all started going, what is going on? Um, anyway, there was a beautiful article in The Age yesterday outlining what's going on. And it was an article, you can look it up, it was entitled, uh, as cases mount, Victoria's contact tracing has undergone a quiet revolution. And essentially it was the boss of the program telling us that um, with the 2,000 cases a day in the last six weeks, they've changed their focus. They're no longer calling everyone and doing detailed contact tracing. What they're doing is if you're a low-risk person, and there's various ways they know that, um, uh, then you get when you get your text saying that you're positive, you now also get a text telling you to isolate for um, two weeks and da-da-da-da-da and go and you know, speak to a doctor online and yada-yada-yada and do all that sort of stuff. You only specifically get a call now if you're high-risk. Now, the main high-risk groups that they rec that they identified in the Age newspaper article were the old, the obese, people in late stages of pregnancy or immunocompromised, people who work in healthcare um, and people with young children. You'll still get a call from contact tracers who will talk you through everything, but they're not now calling everyone, so don't be surprised. It's not a failure of contact tracing. Now, I suspect like you... You know, suspect like sorry, like me. Some of you are thinking: Are they doing this change in risk because they haven't got enough workers to deal with the two thousand people a day, or is it an evidence-based change? I suspect it's a little bit of both because there was also a quote in the article that said um, said we don't have the ability to call every person and say you were positive. So it sounds like it's a you know, look, it's an evidence-based risk um, pivot based on various factors, one of which is the number. Comments, my friends, um, trainer wheels. At the Austin where I work, I know since the beginning of the pandemic, they've been doing this program with anyone who gets a COVID test at the Austin gets a text message, you know, a day or two later with their result, whether it's positive or negative. And whether you have COVID or not, you're invited to fill in this survey where you talk about what symptoms you have. And based on the symptoms you have, you're categorised as low, medium or high risk. And the medium and high risk people, even if they're COVID negative, are called by someone at the Austin to, just to check in to see how their symptoms are going, if they're sort of going downhill or if they're okay. And that's been a really good intervention, I think, for people who are at home um, isolating. You can just check on them, check in on them every day. If they're reporting that they've got shortness of breath, you give them a call. And if they sound really terrible on the phone, say, oh, I think you might need to pop into emergency. Yeah, or COVID if positives. Got a, 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, we've we've had those programs going um, quite a bit too. They're they're great. So a lot of people are getting. It's like a hospital in the home. So you know, I know the Royal Melbourne set one up quite early, and they enlisted a whole lot of nurses who were semi-retired. You know, because it was such a everyone was so short-staffed. You know, gave them some you know quick training, and they were doing spot checks on everyone a day. You know, things have got incredibly more sophisticated since we started. I don't think you know. I mean, I know I get criticised every week for being. People say I'm uh, too optimistic. You know, I don't focus on the negatives enough but um am i trying to i'm stumbling over those words apologies but well, what uh, it says is i mean geez, if this happened again if something all of a sudden another one popped out we would absolutely slam this but still just think you know do you remember when we were interviewing people about the vaccine this time last year um Doty, you know said words to the effect of there's no guarantee we're going to get a vaccine. Everyone's got to be ready. He said, I think we're going to get one. I think we're going to be successful. But if we do, it's going to be the greatest success in the history of medicine. Coming up with a vaccine within a year of um, a worldwide pandemic, it's unheard of, everyone. We've got to be careful. We've got to prepare for the worst, yada, yada, yada. And now a year down the track, we've got about a dozen vaccines. I know, you know, it's just, it's quite incredible. And now don't forget, we've also got new treatments. We've got, uh, I'm going to try and pronounce this, Sotrovimab, <laughs> Sotrovimab, which is is a novel monoclonal monoclonal antibody antibody treatment it's a so it's a lab made protein designed to mimic natural antibodies in the blood and so they give it to you intravenously when you get covid it decreases your chance of getting to the hospital decreases your chance of going to icu we haven't got enough now to give it to everyone but we're certainly using it around the melbourne hospitals in people who are really sick to prevent icus so you know there's a lot of um, there's a lot of positive stuff on the environment this doesn't mean of course you can be slack doesn't mean you can't follow all the guidelines because of course the guidelines are are calibrated to the level of risk in society, which the big committees that sit around doing this take into account all this stuff. They take into account Strovimab. They take into account vaccine rates. They take into account Google movement data. They take into account hospital ICU um, rates and stuff and come up with these policies. It's not some, you know, it's not, it's not Dan Andrews rocking up to the um, press conference and as he rocks up thinks, oh, I might make it 10 Ks today, oh, and has a stretch of his shoulders. It's not. It's big committees and the information's delivered to us very in a very fine and regular fashion by our trusty politicians. Hey, uh, it's two minutes to go. You know, there's nothing I hate more than being late for my um, second favourite show after... No, I'm not going to have play favourites. Um, uh, I hate being late for Einstein. Any final comments, gang? Um, anything? No one wants to criticise me for being smug about vaccine rates and saying you're an idiot, Alan. Shut up. Uh, oh, uh, I just wanted to applaud you on stretching your back and just just giving us a Dan Andrews 10k <laughs> buffer. <laughs> it's not. What is the buffer at the moment? Fifteen. I can't remember. I better not give numbers. I think it's fifteen at the moment. Yeah. I can't remember. I can't keep track. I just wanted to paint a picture for the listeners that. Um, Dr. Doolittle's sitting in his room of some description with exposed bricks with a picture of his book cover behind him and he's drinking from a triple R mug. So even though he's not here in person, none of us are, you know, except for panel beater, he's still flying the flag and, you know, feeling very at home. It's the same mug that panel beater's got behind him, except his one's got pencils in it, I think. <laughs> right shoulder. Hey, uh, um, we better wind up, though. Thanks, everyone, uh, for turning up yet again. And panel beater, big thanks for uh, running it all there. You're our quarterback. Um, I don't even watch American football. I don't know why I use their analogies. I watch too much TV. Hey, uh, Dr. Patient, thanks, man. Good to see Thank you. Thank you, mate. This was great. Good morning, everyone. And the Cyber Sue, you're on fire today. I got to just drink my cup of tea and relax. Thank you so much for joining us. 
That's thanks to my husband's coffee. And ditto to you, um, Trainer Wills. You know, you and Trainer Wills and CyberSue, they've got this vibe going. I don't know. It's, it's great. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page.